Yes, you get to see the in, you get to see the inter sanctum. Love it of our foils and our flubs. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, so three, two, one, clap. Three, two, one. Ooh, that was actually pretty in sync. Come on, I'm proud of us. Yes, very proud. So that's your clapper. That's yeah, that, exactly. That's, oh, that's how I'm going to be able to uh, to sync the sound. Is I look for that clap and then I that sync spike. up the sound. Yeah, that's like a big spike, and then that way it won't be off, and you, she won't ask you a question, and then you laugh like ten minutes later. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. They <laughs> probably do that in old movies. Sometimes my jokes do have that kind of delay. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, no, I don't know if you heard Normie said in old movies. That reminds me of the scene in uh, uh, Singing in the Rain when they show the sound at the party. This are these are my lips. Sinking with the sound. And everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. It's a fad. And then they sing and dance. That's my movie. description of, of singing in the rain. I'm Are you ready, sir? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. In the, rain. <laughs> the vocal stylings of Norm Gunsenhauser. You're welcome, everyone. All right. Uh, are we ready? I'm ready. Okay. Ready graphics? Ready theme? And, and I love the idea that it doesn't matter how famous you are, how much money you make, you still have those primal fears about where do I get my passion now? Is that all there is? What's next? What do I do? This middle, mid-age crisis that he was going through, uh, he was really struggling. Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And welcome to an interview we have been waiting to give you for just a little while. Yeah, so funny story. <laughs> um, we conducted this interview in late 2018. Yes, wait for it. Late 2018. Indeed. My uh, apologies to Mr. Gunsenhauser. Our most patient supporter. Such a patient supporter. So we had invited Norm to come on the show to talk about season two because he was heading back to L.A. And we assumed you know, we would hold it for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And then we thought, well, you know, why don't we hold it for early in 2020 when we get mm -hmm. to all of his episodes. Mm -hmm. And then something happened. Something happened. And getting to his episodes took a little longer than anticipated. Yes. So you may notice that this interview is in person and not mm -hmm. exclusively. Not that, of course, the lovely Jesse has been. I'm always in your heart. I wanted to say Zoom. And I was like, I didn't know what Zoom was back then. Why would I use no. the word Zoom? We were Skype. We we're a Skype cast. Skype cast. <laughs> But what I will say is that even though this conversation was a while ago, there are so many parts of it I still recall. Same. I still remember. I cherish because I think you all have figured out how much we cherish Mr. Norm Gunsenhauser. Genuinely think it was worth the wait. Yeah, And just like with Denise, it's such a great sort of bookend to the end of their episodes for the season. And particularly for mm -hmm. Norm, because then he left after season two and doesn't come back until later on in the uh, run of the show. So this was very special for us. We hope you enjoy it. Bye. Will the mystery guest please sign in? My name <laughs> is Norm Gunsenhauser. And you are our first return guest. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I think Steve did too, well, correct? Well, yes, I guess technically, but he we talked to him longer in the same time. He, we just had to make it two episodes. Oh, I didn't know Which that. is another reason why we wanted you on, because you were our first interview. Because I felt very insecure. <laughs> I thought, oh, they liked him better, so they had him on for two shows. 
Never. I know I, I felt so, it's so funny because I felt so bad. I don't know about you, Jesse. That's what I was, I was like, oh, he's going to think. But it was, our, it was our first show. And listen, I have to say, I was saying before uh, off mic, I got stuck on the train. We had yeah. scheduled you for two hours. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know where Park Slope was. And so I literally left like an hour and a half early. Oh, just no. Because I was so afraid that I That's would. That's what apps are for. I had the app. Yeah, I just sorry, didn't mocking you. know if I, I was going to miss the trains yeah. or yeah. Oh, you're so get stuck in the train. You got here just mm-hmm. in time. It was well, I was sitting at a Starbucks, if you must know. Uh, yeah. Oh, I would so. always rather be there far too early yes. and yes, have a same. Starbucks to sit in yes. than run late because of trains. I mean, that's really what they're for, for that and writing screenplays. Oh, and yeah. that's what I was doing. I brought my little pad, my pen, hey. and did a little work. Great. And waited. Well, we wanted to have you on because we are uh, knee deep into season two. And that was uh, your last season for a while until you came back yes. near the end. But also an exciting season because you guys won the Emmy. We did. Yes. There were so many great episodes of that year. Um, particularly, I mean, Tom and I wrote three fantastic episodes that, that uh, and I could not tell you which one I liked the best, but. Miles' Big Adventure was just so, so fantastic. And mm-hmm. and then, of course, and you haven't covered that, that episode yet, but our Practical Joke episode was just ingenious. It really and, was. And that really was a lot of help from Corby. So, um, you know, uh, it was just one of those great episodes where uh, the story just kept on unfolding and unfolding, yeah. and you just had no idea what mm-hmm. to believe, who to believe, and then ending on a, a great <laughs> surprise. So, yeah. That's an episode I'm really excited for us to get to in this season. It's such a classic. And to remind everyone, that episode is called Frank's Appendectomy. Yes. And the reason for that. Please. <clears throat> two things we did. Because it was a practical joke episode, um, we wanted to fool the cast. We wanted to show up on a Monday table <sighs> reading, having... Joe Recobuto believed that we're going to do one of those old cliche tropes about ending up in a hospital and and having your appendix taken out probably at the wrong time. Yeah. So we decided to play a joke on them by naming it Frank's appendectomy. had nothing to do with hospital or uh, an uh, appendicitis attack. And then the other thing we did was we put fake uh, montages for each of the uh, cast members that only never saw the light of day past that Monday reading. But we, the only one I can remember is uh, Cor, uh, Corky uh, dancing like a stripper on a table in Phil's. So uh, we wanted each of them to go, what is going on? Because they hadn't, I don't think they had read the script. And um, so, you know, we wanted to fool them right from the get go. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I. That's a so in the theme of the yeah, episode. It's just really, really, uh, just so great. I haven't <laughs> seen it in a long time. I don't know how it sounds. It's funny when I look back on Murphy Brown episodes, and it's not often, they're slower than I remember. Um, I always, in my mind's eye, mm. uh, hear them faster. Yeah. So well, that's interesting. I'm always just a little disappointed that they're so slow sometimes. Well, this one really surprised me. I had not seen it in a while because, first of all, the title which now makes me think is super, super meta. 
that it's a fake title yeah. and a fake, fake episode. But I, I had sort of forgotten how many times someone is duping someone or duping someone or duping someone. It was almost like um, a nesting doll. Yeah. D did you ever count how many mm -hmm. times? Because I don't know. Well, let's see, because I just watched it. So, so Murphy fakes Frank. Frank fakes Murphy. Then Miles and Jean fake Frank and Murphy. And then Frank, Frank. and Murphy fake out Miles and Jean. And then Jim and Corky fake out Every, uh, no, fake out Murphy and Frank, and then the secretary fakes out them, right? And then we miss one, I think, and then Miles mm -hmm. fakes out the whole group because he yes, gets... Yes, but Miles and Gene, though, they do yes, it together. Yes, yeah, yeah, so correct, I got that one. Correct. So that's... Yes. I think mm -hmm. I just lost count on my fingers. <laughs> so it was about six? Maybe? Yeah, I think so. I think it's about six. That's a lot. Yeah, I think that's the grand total for a half hour or let's say a 27 minute episode that's a lot yeah we'll definitely have it when we cover it but it's funny going mm -hmm. back because the whole opening is that frank thinks that he has found deep throat yeah which of course now we know who deep throat is <laughs> yes yep uh-huh so i think it gives a completely other different like layer to it because you might be watching it going oh this is before they knew and oh, didn't okay. they say to him uh, somebody said uh in fact the fake the furnace man it yeah. was uh, murphy's furnace man says to frank don't wait too long to jump on this because someday a scenario like this will uh unfold and I don't want you to think that you missed the boat on it yeah that line actually really and caught it me. actually happened yeah I, what was his name? Mm -hmm. Felt. Yes. R Richard Felt? Mark Felt. Uh, Mark Felt. Correct. I believe he was played mm -hmm. by Liam Neeson in the movie. That's funny. <laughs> Just odd casting. I I prefer him played by Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams oh, in yes. the movie Dick, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite political satires. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, that line really, really caught me, yeah, actually. Yeah, it's a very powerful line in yeah. a way, because then you suddenly realize, oh, here mm -hmm. is a investigative reporter whose entire legacy could be built on whether or not to go through with this. And uh, mm -hmm. he does. And if he didn't, we wouldn't have had an episode. So glad yeah. he did. I think that's something that's interesting that uh, we sometimes don't think about with shows like Murphy that are that are lovely little moments of the crossover into reality and what their jobs actually mean. And when you see those parallels in our real life, you're like, oh, right. Like he would be the guy. Yeah. trying to break the story and when we get those real world parallels it it makes it so interesting to consider especially to consider that everyone's just being a bunch of ninnies and i think it was world. a really <laughs> good early episode even though it was what it was in the middle of it's actually more towards later in season later two in season yeah two. it's kind of mm -hmm. the, the back end i would say um it, it's such a good early episode because we didn't really know frank fontana yet mm -hmm. um we didn't know any of the bigger stories he might have broken um, so emotionally, you were in his corner. You really wanted him to make a name for himself. Mm -hmm. So yeah. no, I felt it's it was just so brilliant. I felt it was structured really well because you you feel really bad for Frank when you think yes. that he's going to give up a bigger story for this fake story, and also does not mm -hmm. paint Murphy in the best light. No, she's really even from the beginning no. when. Uh, she she brings Phil into it, and she comes out laughing. Oh, it's a horrible thing. It's a thing horrible to do. thing. Oh, uh, uh, Woodward, right? Yeah. It was it was Woodward that she brought into it as well. Mm -hmm. Like that's an elaborate prank, and then she comes out laughing. I just went not funny. Yes, you know, and I kind yeah. of love that. I mean, we talk on the show of Murphy Brown being sort of what they refer, refer to these days as an unlikable woman. 
that there's so much in television, mm-hmm. particularly in early television, that women had to be likable. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore, that girl, they weren't allowed to be human and maybe not be 100% likable. Mm-hmm. And that is what Murphy Brown is. And she really opened the door for a lot of women on television. But particularly in this episode, I, you know, she's not very likable at all. She's yeah. really mean. Mm-hmm. Which is great that then mm-hmm. it gets back on top right, of that. Right, yeah. then you have the comeuppance. Yeah. And yeah. So it all pays off. But I was just going to say that if you sort of look at it as um, hardworking, tired people who are always, um, always have their nose to the grindstone, you sort of understand that they at times would play these mean practical jokes just to break up the, I hadn't thought of it that way. the yeah. monotony or the exhaustion of, of, of yeah. always breaking stories. Just like we do in the room, you know, sometimes you wonder how mm-hmm. we get any work done because we bring our families into it. We, you know, obviously we get a little snipey in the room <laughs> at times. Um, but it's, it, I think it all feeds into your art and then probably for Murphy too. It probably f- it keeps them energized in a way. And yes, it backfired, but yeah, I think so. We, I mean, we talk about this in um, another show that we love and we mention quite often is the West Wing is that idea of those, those jobs where the stakes are so high and it's so real and very real world. Not right. you're not just part of an a part of entertainment or that kind of like they are actually part of breaking the news that affects people's lives and those people have to be able to cut loose and I, I enjoy seeing them cut loose together even if it's very imperfect and flawed um, because I think you know we talk about the quote unquote unlikable woman concept but I actually think those imperfections make her more likable because it humanizes. But if if a man had done the very same Mm -hmm. joke on somebody, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. think twice about it. You wouldn't even think twice about it. But because, yes, because it was a very strong woman, an iconic woman, a woman you Mm -hmm. respected for all her flaws, it, yeah, it hits home a little bit more. Um, If she had done it to, well, Miles, she could have done it to, but if she had done it to Jim, that would have been inexcusable. Really good point. But she did it to her best friend. And and there is mm-hmm. brought the fact that after she stops laughing, that you know, yeah. <laughs> Frank listed her house in in the newspaper, I believe. You know, so it, it, this is something that they definitely do to each other. This one is really far when you see that he's you know it's affecting his work. Um, mm-hmm. But well, that is a good setup. This this is what they do to each other. This is how they they show their love and affection. And I'll be quite honest with you that this comes from someplace in me because. Um, I love practical jokes, and it's way too long to get into now, and I'll tell you off the air, but I <laughs> pulled a practical joke on a writer friend in Moscow that I, to this day, feel so bad about. In fact, I just came back from Los Angeles about a month ago, and uh, we talked about it again because it really was unbelievably insane what I put him through, and he then did get back to me in a very... Uh, very mean way um so so obviously these shows do come from someplace mm-hmm. within all of us you know and that's what you want right that's what you want you want the writers to to dig deep into their own yeah. sick mm-hmm. psyche and come up with something really fun well we were told the story um i forget if it was steve who told it or maybe it was russ that you faked out everybody with a, a video that was supposedly rob yes. lowe's sex video exactly Oh, it was the greatest practical joke ever. Uh, and it was back when the big Panasonic VHS cameras were, you know, being sold. And uh, 
has he already told the story? Because mm-hmm. I won't go through yeah, it Yeah, they told the story. It's so, okay. So yeah, it was fantastic. And it got around the stage so quickly. And, mm-hmm. and I think I became Candace's hero after that that episode. Well, um, <clears throat> I will find out after the fact which episode it was so everyone can listen. But what I appreciate is that you kept it going for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and I do remember this. And I don't know if Steve or Russ mentioned this, but um, when the tape was revealed to be a fake... Um, I just remember we were all sitting around a couch looking at the the porn, the fake porn. But it was just it was just darkness, right? It was, no, it oh. was actually me, but you couldn't see my face. Obviously, you saw legs, you saw my my wife. Oh, it was much more graphic oh, than I realized. It was it oh, was I'm a sorry. whole video thing. <laughs> wow, with I, fake voices no. and fake dialogue. Oh, we we did <laughs> wow. everything. Okay, this I did not realize. Well, oh, that, yeah. that's committed. Oh. It was sir. a whole yeah. I'm we so we cleared out our bedroom because I saw the Rob Lowe tape yeah. and he just had he was in a motel room yeah, with I've a beer bottle <laughs> on the pillow and um and all we did was uh show our legs and our feet and and when i walked by the camera you would just see my shoulders and never my face because people would obviously know it's me yeah that part. it was a whole thing wow and then all i remember <laughs> is once it was revealed that it was fake i just remember diane she she didn't join us around the couch she stayed at her spot uh, at the end of the table the writing table oh. and all i remember is when we, she found out that it was a fake. She literally shot up like a rocket and spit either coffee or soda out of her mouth. And I always said this, that if you could have bottled the energy that was expelled out of complete relief that that wasn't a porn film, uh, you could have lit up Los Angeles. That was not explained to us either. It made oh, it yeah. seem like it was just the guys. Yeah. No, it was it was to the whole room. everybody. Oh, it was the whole room. You should look into, uh, are you familiar with the actor Josh Molina? Sure. Uh, that's his thing. Oh, it is? Like practical jokes to mm-hmm. the Murphy degree. I yeah. mean, like, I don't know how people are still friendly with him based on, they, mu- mm-hmm. he must, they just must love him so much, yeah. which is also a great testament to Josh Molina, probably. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll send some of them to you. What he's done. I'd is, love to. And George Clooney was known for this. Oh, too. yeah, sure. And, and the long con. Oh, yes. And and I felt bad this time around when we uh, redid Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you you guys don't call it reboots? You call it revival. Revival. Yeah. Re- re- reboot would be if they redid Murphy Brown with different actors. So um, I was feeling bad halfway through the mm-hmm. season that nobody has had pulled uh, a practical joke on Candace. So uh, I tried a couple times. I actually sent away for fake snakes, and she never <laughs> saw them, and and or she just never mentioned them, and because everybody was sort of standoffish, people didn't want to, you know, uh, you know, play any jokes on her. And I finally sent away for dog crap, fake dog crap on Amazon, and I put it. I forgot where I put it uh, in her trailer, and. I never heard anything, anything, anything. I, what the uh, the stagehand promised he put it, uh, he put it in her trailer, and uh, one day in the writing room, I get my lunch. It says Norm on the styrofoam carton. I open it up, and she had taken the dog crap and put it in a hot dog bun, surrounded by vegetables, <laughs> whatever it was. It was with, on I think Instagram. Must, yes. <laughs> yep. And that's why she's the queen. <laughs> well, I think something that actually ties into the episode that you wrote is, and I think it's actually a theme that comes up a lot in other episodes in the show as well, but is that that fine line within pranking that is the intention and the impact. And the 
is something we see happen a lot throughout the show that people have the best of intentions, but what they do impacts people negatively and they're not quite ready for it. And that's why I love that the truth of it coming from you, that you've had this real life experience that it did not go well. It was not the right way to do it. And that that is what makes it so much more interesting than just like a prank episode. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a better one. And it's almost like stand up. It's close up magic. You don't really see where it's going. So you can never really get ahead of it. And uh, Mm -hmm. so we were juking left, juking right. And uh, I think it was really successful. No, it's great. And I really credit Diane for allowing that because that was early on in the show. We had a lot more subject matter to cover. And um, it's quite amazing that that show, that seems like a show you would do once you sort of run out of stories to tell. But um, it was just brilliant. So I know that we've already covered Miles's Big Adventure, which was your, your first episode of, of season two. Yeah, but that was one of my favorite. Yeah. I, I, I love, you know, we talked about it. We talked about the idea that we always try to look for stories in Murphy that um, where the character is going through something for the first time. And that was so fantastic that he was able to uh, become an investigative journalist. Uh, it was baptism by fire. And I just I just loved it. It just seems so obvious to do that to him. But the, also that episode just unfolded so beautifully where here is a guy that just needed time off here is this type a personality who goes on vacation kicking and screaming he didn't want to let go of that show and then ultimately we then think in the airport maybe it's going to be about a guy that meets yardley smith and (laughs) you know wherever that's going to go and he has to run away from her who knows and then it becomes about this madman in a fighter jet with nuclear warheads and i loved i loved it for two reasons one is obviously it put miles into a situation he never dreamed about being in and he was successful at it um but the other thing was and when i wrote that long speech it was a long speech when he was finally on air and he writes it talks about how abandoned the island is and uh it was so quiet you couldn't even hear the birds and Really where I got that from, the whole tone of it was Chernobyl had happened, what, four years earlier. So um, I just remember, I don't remember if it was Mike Wallace or Steve Croft, but somebody in 60 Minutes had covered Chernobyl around that time. And I remember seeing it on 60 Minutes. and, And so it was always in the back of my head, wouldn't it be cool to have sort of that kind of scenario? Not that we developed that show because of that, but when it came time for that speech of Miles, um... That's where I got it from. That's where I got the tone from. He was basically described in Chernobyl. And what I loved about the other part I loved was that Barnett Kalman, because it was back then, today we would have done that same scene with green screen. Miles would have been pictured. We talked about that. Yeah. But it's more powerful, actually. So much more powerful, isn't it? Oh, it's way more interesting without seeing. Yeah. Plus the point of view is of the show. Yeah. Because we we talked Mm -hmm. about that and then we came to the point of like, oh, well, of course we're only hearing him because we're from the point of view of Murphy right now and the gang. Mm -hmm. And so it, but yeah, it was more powerful when you just heard his voice. And funnier, I have to say, when he still thinks he's on he's on camera, so to speak, <laughs> and they're done and patting each other on the back, and he's yeah. doing this beautiful Hemingway yes. oh, type I thing, it. and he's oh, it gives me goosebumps. Not when even I, there, yeah. Bless his and heart. then what I also love, Barnett then had a slow pan of the people listening to. Oh, I just get goosebumps. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Barnett was just did that slow pan mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of the the. Um, 
the the crew yeah listening to miles and it was so powerful to just see them in awe of this guy in really a lot of danger it was a dangerous mm-hmm. situation yeah. for this poor kid for a, a- a man with so much anxiety. Yes. He really puts himself out there. He was successful, too. He I'm, was just so good. There's that. There's uh, hiding from the gangster who wants to kill him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an interesting... Oh, I forget who said the quote, but the idea that um, anxiety is fear what's on the other side of the door, and fear is when you open the door and the bear's actually there. Joanna Gleason said that in our interview. Mm. Yes. Yes, we were just talking about yeah. that. And um, But the great thing about that is... I think that's Miles' problem, is he has the anxiety about what if there's a bear on the other side of right. the door. But when he opens the door and the bear is there, he actually shows up. But isn't that life in general? I mean, that, isn't that all of us? Yeah. Don't we all build these narratives, these false mm-hmm. narratives, and we get anxious about them? I, just coming on this show, you know, you start thinking about all the things that could go wrong, and you go to yourself, eh, I don't want to give in to that kind of anxiety. Let me just mm-hmm. put myself out there and see what happens. Um and that's how I think most people get through their days. They're just afraid yeah. to put one foot in front of the other. They stay at their mm-hmm. job too long. They stay in their hometown too long. And so that's mm-hmm. sort of a microcosm of, of life. Yeah, and it's not as scary as you think it's, it's going never, to be when right, it happens. It's never as bad as you yeah. think. You go, oh, yeah. that was nothing. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's also different, I think, when it's happening to you because having been sick for a while, and I'm fine now, guys, but and I and explaining it to people, because mm-hmm. I already lived it, I sort of have a little blase about it. Oh, well, this happened and I almost died, blah, blah, blah. I remember when I was telling you about it. And and the look I get back is I forget. People are like, oh, my God. Yeah. I'm like, no, but I'm fine now. Yeah. But because it was happening to you, you don't realize how sort of dire it was because mm-hmm. you kind of had to just go through it. Yeah. And until I tell someone in their, their face and I go, oh, I'm sorry. I forget that I should not be as blase mm-hmm. about this when I talk about it. Well, there's something about being on the other side of it. You know, the the being the survivor of something. I think about that with um, a, an attack that I went through. And when you talk about it, it's terrifying because nobody has – that's the first time they're encountering it. They're not on the other mm-hmm. side of the story mm-hmm. yet. So you do get that reminder of like, oh, I I know the ending's fine. But even when you guys were going through all of this, mm-hmm. isn't the human spirit amazing? What we will do mm-hmm. to survive? Yeah. I mean, you will do mm-hmm. anything to survive. Not everybody will, but um, mm-hmm. the mass majority of people will be amazing in, in trying to mm-hmm. get over whatever they're trying to get over, whether it's cancer, whether it's whatever. Um, that lizard brain is amazing. Mm. Our primal instinct. Mm. You know, my father had pancreatic cancer and... He was still fighting, even though he knew, you know, the consequences were not going to be great. But mm-hmm. I, I was just amazed watching him really fight it. Uh, it's just amazing to well, me, one the of human my, spirit. Yeah, one of my favorite stories about Gilda Radner, because um, I played her in a movie, so I've done a lot of research on her. And it's not in this amazing documentary that everyone should see, because I helped with it a little bit. It's uh, called Love, Gilda. It's nominated for Emmys. Anyway. It's so good. Um, oh, I, just, little I saw plug Love for Gilda. It. Oh, you finally saw it? I saw it on the plane. Oh, yay. I loved it. Great. So this is not in the documentary because it's from uh, Gilda's point of view, and this is a story that um, Gene mm-hmm. Wilder told. But the last time she went into the hospital, she didn't want to go in because uh, she knew that she, she, she would mm-hmm. not come out. This mm-hmm. would be the last time if she had to go to the hospital. And she tried to run out. This is someone who is 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 dying and and knows that this is this mm-hmm. is the end, but she had such an amazing spirit of wanting to live, 
which I think as you're talking is a human spirit, that she tried to run out of the hospital. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Well, and I think to yeah. to bring it back to Miles, I think that's the reason why I've never seen his character as a as a weak character. There's, you know, I think that it's easy to write off somebody who's known as being high strung and having a lot of neuroses as being a weaker character, especially next to someone like Murphy. But he he's always he always steps up even when he's up against a bigger guy he will step up and do what he needs yeah. to do because he is he's incredibly strong of spirit and I, I think he's such a great representation especially for the people who don't feel like they're the biggest strongest guys in the room i mean the very fact the whole show is based on mm-hmm. this right that here's this guy just fresh out of harvard who takes on this powerful successful woman at her really at her weakest mm-hmm. time and and or i should say really she came back to prove a lot of things and so she was tough on him and mm-hmm. and he went up against her and i just i always thought that grant was the co-leader of that show without miles i don't think there would have been uh, a murphy brown no, i think his character no, was so fantastic yeah it's, it's mm-hmm. so, i mean diane does such an amazing job with, with these characters uh you know for all of us i mean season two was when we were able to let loose because season one, you know, I, Tom and I were working on uh, Newhart and it was just one of those, it was a great experience and it was really in its own way a brilliant show, but um, it was the very conservative situation comedy, first act, big act break, second act. And then you come on to Murphy Brown with characters you've never seen before um, with a three act structure. Diane brought the three-act structure to television. Uh, we didn't settle in on just one act break. It was two act breaks, but they were all very um, just cohesive. And I'm trying to think of the word, but it, it, it just all we 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 all told great stories because these stories unfolded. Shows like New Heart and a lot of the CBS shows today are situations, you know. They're in a car, they're in a house, they're in a club, they're whatever. But it's just uh, a scene unto itself, all strung together to create this 30-minute show or uh, a 21-minute show now. Uh, Murphy Brown wasn't like that. It's just uh, we created stories that where you just didn't know where they mm-hmm. were going. And so we were lost in that first season. We didn't know how – Tom and I did not know how to write Eldon. We didn't know – we didn't understand him, even though now it seems so obvious so by the second a- second season, we were we were all a, a, a cohesive group, and we really got the show, and we were all able to let loose. And Diane was able to leave the room and write her scenes mm-hmm. and leave us to do work uh, and trust us in the room to do some work uh, without her always in there. I mean, she was in there most of the time, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times, especially late at night when we had to get scenes done, uh, she would go into her office and. Um, and just leave us kids to, uh, to figure out certain things. I, I do remember this one thing in the second season when, I don't remember what we were doing, but we're all fooling around. And she comes in and yells at us like a mother. <laughs> and so everybody was like, just like really quiet. And I just remember she leaves the room. There's this deathly silence. And all I remember saying was, told you. 
<laughs> and it just broke up the, the tension. Well, we brought up before, actually, I think, Jesse, this was your point, that uh, having been an English teacher probably makes oh, Diane yeah. really uh, <laughs> a, a, a good, was a good skill to have to be a showrunner. Yes, yes. I mean, she didn't do that a lot, but I remember a couple of times where it was like, you know, there was a lot of tension, and especially there was a lot riding on that show, and... What did we do? Twenty seven episodes that season. So uh, yeah, it's it. Oh, or twenty six. Twenty six. Yeah, and that counts. uh, Which we were talking about before, which the audience may not realize, but uh, Brown like me was Mm -hmm. an hour episode, but it counts as two of the order. So really, it was twenty five, but twenty six half hours, and. I had forgotten that when we started setting up season two, and the reason it's taken us so long to get through season two is all of a sudden I went. Oh my God, Jesse, this is going to take us longer. We need a break yeah. in between. It's a big season. <laughs> this is not going to take us. The f- yeah, that's the that's I mean, a lot. Because I think we did what twenty one or twenty two mm-hmm. the yeah. first season, and then CBS obviously knew what they had because we knew halfway through the first season that we had something special because yeah. the Museum of Broadcasting wanted to do a tribute to Murphy Brown, and uh, so by second season, you know, CBS knew that they had a bona fide hit. Yeah, which I should say because uh, I was there today. Uh, now they call it the Paley Center yeah. for Media. I don't know if you realize that. Mm-mm. Yeah, isn't Where is it interesting? It? Oh, there's two. There's one in New York and one in L.A. I think the, the one LA in L.A. In, yeah, in Beverly Hills. But the one um, in New York is actually right next to CBS, next to BlackRock. Oh, be darned. Yeah, 52nd Street. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's smaller, but it's really nice. I've been going there since I was 12. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those secrets in the city yeah. that everyone should know about. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's great. And I think people might think that you can't go to the Paley mm-hmm. Center because everything's on YouTube. But that's not true. There is a lot of stuff there that isn't streaming, that isn't on YouTube, from stuff that was on the last 20 years to watching your show of shows. Yeah, which I actually would like mm-hmm. to do. And and I actually, speaking of that, I went to the building. Yes, tell us about this. Well, should we? Or I mean, this should be about Murphy Brown. Well, I mean, it? we like to talk about. Yeah, it's about it's you. About, we like to talk about <laughs> the history of television. That's for sure. Also, we can edit it out if you really want to. Um, but if many people who are fans of television uh, may or may not know that, uh, if I may speak to you for a moment to introduce it, that the show, your show of shows filmed in New York and the offices are still here in TV land, put a plaque up I did. and you went in search of it. I did. You know, I, I didn't think I was even going to get past the guard, but uh, I went in the theater side of What's it called? City? City Center. It's City where Manhattan Center. Theater City Club Center. slash City Center so is So I went now. in the yeah. theater side and I said, you know, I would love to see where the, your show shows was done. And I gave him a whole spiel that I'm a TV writer and blah, blah, blah. And he said, just go around the side. You'll see the plaque. I thought it was going to end there. And then he said, go talk to the guard and ask him to send you up to the sixth floor and talk to Aubrey or ninth floor and talk to Aubrey. So... Um, I went up there, and God bless him, he sent me up to the ninth floor. I talked to Aubrey. Um, she was going to call the the uh, operations manager, who happened to be on vacation. So she said, just call back. Uh, but I actually went downstairs, down the staircase oh, to the did. sixth floor, 6M, <laughs> and just did my own mm-hmm. investigating. And, uh, and there I was in front of the office where... The likes of Larry Gelbart and Mel Tolkien and Woody Allen was not a part of it. No, there's so, a mistake on the plaque. Actually, yeah, because w- people mm-hmm. get confused because Woody Allen wrote for um, Admirals um, at the Admiral Hour, which was a secondary yeah. show after. I don't know if it was a really a spinoff, but I guess it was. <clears throat> <Yeah>. Excuse me, <clears throat> let's see my voice here. 
not a spinoff in the traditional sense, but yeah, it was well, sort a, of a they did another show, project. which was just mm-hmm. kind of some of the same writers. Also, Lucille Callan. Yes, Lucille Callan. I am a big fan of. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, yes. Mm-hmm. And um, Selma Diamond yes. at one point. She oh, replaced yeah, Lucille yeah. Callan. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. Lucille Callan uh, moved upstate and started writing mystery books. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Which is my dream, honestly. Right? Jessica Fletcher is all I want to be. I, it's very hard to find information on her, and I'm fascinated. Around? No, no. Oh, I would yeah, I mean, they're all, you know, Mel and Carl are in their 90s yes. now. Yeah, so. mm-hmm. that's amazing. Carl Ryder, yes, he was part of it, too. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it was just really great. And so I, I took a video, which I never do. I usually just take photos, put it on Instagram. And then Mel Tolkien's son happened <gasps> to see it. No. And he said oh. he saw my picture in front of those double doors where his dad used to work, and he used to go as a little oh. child. And... He he missed uh, missed it up. He said he got he teared up when he saw because he remembers oh. that, those double doors. Well, Milk so. Tolkien was the head writer, correct? Is my I understanding? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, because he 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 and Lucille Callan were a team. Mm-hmm. That's oh, I how they know that. yeah got together because mm-hmm. and I forget the name of it, but they all sort of met. A lot of them met doing this sort of. Not really summer stock, but this like summer camp. Right. That Max Liebman. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ran. The producer it was found like, them. Yeah, it was like a camp. You're right. Yeah. I don't think it was like a Catskills camp, but it was kind of, I, I yeah, was not was prepared like, to talk about your show shows. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Jesse, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm just suddenly thinking about Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and going down a completely different tangent. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> don't mind God, me. Wouldn't it be great if they did an episode where she was on your show shows? Oh, oh, I can dream. Steal that idea, guys. I was actually thinking <laughs> as we were talking that. It's a shame that we never did an episode on Murphy Brown where Miles actually wins an award, the the Humboldt Award, oh, for his yeah. coverage uh, in yeah. Tobago. Well, it's funny. I thought you were going to say flashbacks because uh, I'm a huge fan of flashbacks, and I, I was always sad that there aren't that many flashback episodes in the series. I was thinking about that yeah. too. I was as we were talking about Miles and Murphy. I was thinking, yeah. wouldn't it have mm-hmm. been cool to see his first day on the job before meeting yeah. Murphy Brown? Oh, from his point of view, yeah. That How would be petrified this kid was, and. Oh, we'll write that fan fiction. You know, that just seems like it would have been a cool <laughs> flashback to see that. Or an episode. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. That would have been really cool to see. Because we do see him once he's been there. Because Summer of 77 was one of my favorites. It's one of our favorites, too, actually. And I list it as my favorite of season one. Oh, well, I did. we did kind of touch on a little bit you talking about not knowing how to write Eldon right away. But I was wondering, be, it being your second season going in as a writer... Were there any characters that changed for you to write or coalesce differently? You know, it's funny. Looking back on it, for whatever reason, Tom and I always, always, always gravitated towards Jim, 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 Jim. So we really never even thought about doing an Elden episode, per se. Never even, it never (laughs) conjured in my brain. So for us, it was just trying to find different sides of Jim to write about. And, um, and yes, we, we wrote the Miles Big Adventure, but, uh, I don't really remember. I don't think that was our idea to write it. I think it was given to us Mm -hmm. and I'm so glad it was. Tom and I always like to come up with our own episodes and I don't, but I don't think we came up with that one to write. I will say as a self-appointed president of the Jim Dial fan club. Um, I appreciate everything you've done for me. Oh, as a fan. I know he was such a, such a special character. Why do you like him, Jesse? What what was it about him? And I'm sure you covered it. Oh yeah, but I, you know, it's so funny. I've he's always been my favorite, and it's 
it's grown for me as we rewatch. Because um, there was always, you know, kind of a nostalgic love of him. And the more we watch, the more I'm getting, I'm able to articulate as an adult. For me, part of it is, I think, some of Charlie's inherent uh, Minnesotan um, wholesomeness. That is, I was born and raised in Minnesota. So there's a certain thing that reminds me of the uh, strong, yet sensitive men that I grew up with. Uh, there were just such good, solid men who were great examples of how to be uh, masculine without being aggro or negative. Yeah. Um, I also love people, uh, characters who take themselves too seriously. Yes. <laughs> so there is something so wonderful in the humor of Jim when he is just like trying to be a classic anchor. And the fact that he is such a goofball. I mean, he truly takes himself so seriously, but when he gets tickled, it is just, it's such a reward for loving him. I mean, Charlie... With his little, mm. little details. Facing. Yes. You know, just the way he would just make yes. it, uh, just a crooked little smile or oh. uh, uh, he was just so brilliant at it. Um, mm-hmm. You see a lot of his uh, his stage experience, too. Yeah. The small details and and making Jim a human character, because we've talked mm-hmm. about before in the show that I think another actor might have made him sort of a one dimensional stuffy mm-hmm. a cliche. Well, you know, in, yeah. a, in a way though he was a cliche in the pilot i i don't really i'd have to look through I it maybe you guys true. know i think mm-hmm. he is speaking to what the to your question i, I think mm-hmm. he we were able to find his humanity as the mm-hmm. seasons went along yeah um right up to i think it was the ninth season when he was caught at the airport with a baggie of pot. Season 10. Season 10. Because that's when mm-hmm. Murphy had cancer. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. So, uh, you know, to get Jim in trouble because he brought tried to bring pot through the... He just had no idea it was still mm-hmm. in his coat pocket. Uh, you know, Tom and I wrote that one too. And, um, you know, it was just neat to see... Put this goofball into the situation yeah. he never in millionaires would have been in. And then well, Roasted and think- was just... Uh, 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 that was our baby. Well, that too. was my first episode of Murphy Brown I ever saw. Oh, mm. well, let's talk about that. Uh, and it's a very big gym episode. Oh, also, yeah. rewatching it recently, I think that I didn't see the first scene. I think that I tuned in. Oh. And it's funny how you just get weird flashbacks. But I think I tuned in on the second scene, which is when they go into the ballroom. They're like outside the ballroom. Oh. And she realizes mm. that this is not going to be a good thing for him, that he does not want to be roasted. It is yep. the worst thing to do. He is not. He's very melancholy. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. And it's such a character episode. And I don't mm-hmm. know what took my attention to it, but you have this really funny scene and then this beautiful dramatic scene at the end sitting mm-hmm. at the Lincoln Look. Memorial, correct? Mm-hmm. Looking over on the water and talking about life. And for yeah. some reason, little 12-year-old, 13-year-old me was like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I... And I kept watching and watching and become quite you know a huge fan of it but i realized that was my first episode my two memories Mm -hmm. of that show um one was you know tom and i could write the show we knew that but the hardest part about that episode for me was i am not a joke writer by trade Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i had to now come up with roast jokes and i just remember Mm -hmm. i don't know how many i came up with a hundred just bad ones to try to winnow it down to whatever it was 10 or 11 or 12 and um but in the end i think i came up with some really nice and the room came up with a couple but um 
the majority of them were my roast jokes that I, to this day I'm really, really proud of because those are hard to do. And then oh, yeah. the cast did such a good job, especially Miles. I remember Miles telling his little joke and just, you know, <laughs> slamming the punchline twice because he was so into it. They really rub it so in. Proud. They're all so excited to roast him oh. and he's just dying. Yeah. Yeah. Those are tough. Well, and I think that episode for me is kind of an heir apparent to Soul Man oh. in many ways. How's that? Um, in what we see in what Lauren's talking about, where we get these funny moments, and then we get this incredible scene at the mm. end. And I still, to the so far to this day, I'm still holding Soul Man up there toward the top of my I list agree. of episodes of this show. It was a very um, important episode. And I, I think something about Jim that stands out for me is, and I've been, I was raised by a family that um, was essentially a generation older than the rest of my friends' families. So I... I was raised on, in this environment of loving the kind of the living legends of the day of uh, people that I didn't necessarily, I don't think my contemporaries necessarily knew much about. Um, but I have such a fondness for the the generation above. And so there's something about Jim that rings for me. But I think within that, it's being able to see the humanity of the living legend, yeah. of seeing the cliche in that pilot, and then seeing it slowly get chipped away as you see the guy underneath and having those moments of him bucking up against what should be a cliche personality and getting to see the cracks underneath i think is just so endearing about him he just gets better with age like a fine wine and and i love the idea that it doesn't matter how famous you are how much money you make you still have those primal fears about Mm -hmm. where do i get my passion now is that all there is Jim was only 50 years old, I think, in that episode. Oh, wow. I am now 63. And um, Mm -hmm. he just seemed like he was so much older than that for whatever reason. And um, And there's there's something about the shelf life of his industry. Yeah, but I think it even became really a human fear of this anxiety of what's next? What do I do? Mm -hmm. This Mm -hmm. mid-age crisis that he was going through. Uh, he was really struggling. And mm-hmm. the, the, the thing that I really remember about that show was um, we always knew, Tom and I always knew we wanted to have that talk at the end. Me, I'm thinking we have the Oak Room. We have it, the place that he was roasted. Why not find a little corner? Maybe we were talking about the Kochek Room, someplace where these two could have a uh, discussion. Tom... My writing partner says, why don't we put it on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial? I said, Tom, Diane is not going to pay money for one, <laughs> for a set, for one scene. Uh, you know, in my mind's eye, because I wasn't so production savvy as I am now, I'm imagining you know, the, the statue of Lincoln, and I'm just imagining this much bigger uh, set, mm-hmm. which we could have also done with green screen today. But, um, but... We brought it to Diane and, and pitched the idea of doing it in the, on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial. And she said, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, for that one scene, it was so much more powerful. It was fun the way Murphy pretended the steps were yeah, freezing. Yeah, really good detail. And his whole discussion, I can't remember it, but, you know, how beautiful the day is. And then you the sun comes up and you see Tootsie pop roll uh, uh tootsie roll wrappers and mm-hmm. gum wrappers on the steps and you know so emotionally he started unraveling just with the yeah. the vision of mm-hmm. how the world has changed 
and mm-hmm. uh, and then yes, obviously ending up with him running buck naked into the <laughs> reflecting pool. I don't remember if he said cannonball or Geronimo, but oh, I but, think cannonball. Oh. I think it's cannonball. Yeah. But it was just That's so my, yeah. good that he was able to slink away to this one spot he always went mm-hmm. to, and she was able to find him. Well, and it's just you see little Jim. You know, it's we don't we don't change that much. Like you said, we all have these things. Yeah, we're just children, aren't we? Really, we're yeah. not alive that long to. Yeah. Like, what was it, Jesse? You said about Jerry Gold. Oh, little boy, who hurt you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, little boy, who hurt you? <laughs> oh, Jerry. <laughs> but that season two was amazing in that respect. You introduced mm-hmm. Jerry Gold. You mm-hmm. introduced Miller Redfield. You you introduced uh, Bill Brown, Murphy's mm-hmm. father. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was a jam-packed season. It was a fantastic season. Anchors yeah. Away, to me, I have the the fondest memory because we were outside shooting on the back lot yes. of Warner Brothers, pretending it was Libya. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Jim talked some Arabic uh, or whatever. Oh, well, I mean, throwing back to like what what they're seeing from the from the studio, like with Miles, that moment of Jim being threatened while he's in the Middle East and has guns around him is terrifying. So powerful. And, oh my gosh. It's so I weird. think the picture is in that Murphy Brown book. Yes, there's tons mm-hmm. of pictures of you guys, you yeah. know, filming that episode. I was, and it was mm-hmm. fun shooting outside. Um, yeah. <laughs> you didn't get outside much. <laughs> no, and then he finds out that, oh my God, I'm being replaced by this young, dumb Yeah, I was going to say, I, just us talking about Roasted, it... it Having that episode at the beginning of the season really, I think, leans into Roasted, that this oh. is something that, mm-hmm. you know, is apparent in his life. You know, yeah. he is worried about being replaced by this this little schmuck yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, had to pretend that it was OK. And so the fear is real of being replaced. And if you really think about real life, Jim probably replaced some old fart. Yeah. So it's coming from a real place for him, even though we never talked about it. Yeah. Well, and there's also the fact that, you know, when we have Corky come in and second episode of the series, right. Double with the Blue Dress is coming in on Murphy. And then we have Jim, like each there. The great thing about having those kind of multi-generations in the gang is that you get to see it like you think Murphy's the one getting replaced. Well, Jim's been around longer. Good point. Like, so it, it's interesting to see that happening on all the tiers and between both genders yeah. and the different ways yeah. that happens. And Jim's not the kind of character who would talk about that kind of thing. So it, it ends yeah. up being really beautiful when he finally sort of takes that layer off of mm-hmm. his sort of generation of we don't talk about these things and opens mm-hmm. up to Murphy, who he fe- feels comfortable with. It's it, it's really beautiful. And we've also talked about, you know, and then he meets we meet Doris and Doris. she's the perfect foil for him. Perfect. Oh, yeah. She's the best. Yeah. Perfectly cast. That, that's another season two guest star, right? We, oh, we finally meet it? Doris. Yeah. Yeah. The, the original and only Doris in our minds. Dana Carroll. Yeah, Dana yes. Carroll. Really fantastic. Yeah. The woman who would tame Jim Dial. Yeah. Mm. So I was listening to our first interview with you, and you had spoken about really loving writing for Yardley Smith. And I, I don't think we really talked about that. Was that, was she, she was already on The Simpsons, wasn't she? We were. Tr- we, I think so. I think so. But it was. It was Tracy right Ull- about that time. Yeah, it was same but time. But was it Tracy Ullman still? Or was it had the show? I forget. We did that oh, episode such a long goodness. time ago. Well, I know <laughs> it must have been. I think the Simpsons started in '89. Didn't they just celebrate their thirtieth 
year. Yeah, yes. that makes total sense. Yes. So it. So I. But I honestly did not know who she was back then. I, we loved her voice, that voice, and the way she sang "Yellow Bird." <laughs> oh, um, so cute! But so we good. really didn't know anything about her, and I honestly don't remember that much about her in that episode, mm-hmm. except that she was perfect for the role. Oh my she was gosh, so when cute. she just appears behind him. Oh it's my God, just... it's like a nightmare. Oh, she's a wonderful nightmare, yeah. And he's going to be stuck with her. Exactly. Oh, and she loves him so much. She loved him so much. Oh, so great. I mean, if, if she hadn't come on so strong, I, I do believe that oh, she yeah. is Miles' type. Although I would argue. Did they exchange? Did they exchange numbers? No, she stalked him and found him at the end. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> yes. right. That's what she it found was. Him. That's I, what it was. We jokingly talk about a lot on the on the series how <laughs> people show up to this network yeah. news show and they let them people up in find the them elevator. And get in we should very go talk easily. to the security people. They yeah. let everybody up. Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, or say, oh, you want to see Murphy Brown? Here's her address. Yeah. Just go yeah. to her house. <laughs> Just drive right up, no problem. Yeah. We could have actually done that today. You know, we somebody could have been mad at her and then kept and then just yeah. advertised her a, uh, address. Mm-hmm. That would have mm-hmm. been a fun. Oh, doxed her. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh well. It was 1988, by the way. I mean, 19, sorry, it was 1989. You are all correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we are correct. 31 years of of my of of the Simpsons, my brain could not remember. <laughs> but you have to remember, we were all so busy that, and we talked about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no, uh, I had no knowledge about Seinfeld. I had no knowledge about almost all the popular culture. I had no knowledge of The Simpsons at that mm-hmm. point. We were just mm-hmm. so busy, just like the Simpson people probably had no knowledge about us. Yeah, I think that mm-hmm. most people don't realize, you know, how how many long hours you put in. It's yeah. not a nine to five you job. You do not have time to watch television. Yeah, and then the last thing you want to do is watch TV. So. <laughs> That's true. What is it they say? Busman's holiday. Yeah, is that Bus- the turn? Yeah, Busman's Holiday. I remember going to see Larry Gelbart mm-hmm. speak before I even became a writer, and people asked him what his favorite show was. He says, "I don't watch television." I remember mm-hmm. sitting in the audience thinking, "What? You're a writer and you don't watch TV?" And that's what happens. Well, Aaron mm-hmm. Sorkin talked about that he gets too influenced. Actually, like it, for him, it's he doesn't have time, but it's also a choice that if he is writing a project, he stops watching anything because he's such a sponge mm-hmm. that he he's afraid that he might accidentally steal something from someone. Yeah. I get that. I remember my my first friend who um who was able to, who ended up on Broadway and she was saying she's like the worst thing about being on Broadway is I never get to see theater anymore. Oh, yeah. She's like cuz I'm working when all the shows happen. Yeah. It's like, "Oh right, that's the other side of working in the industry is that you're don't you aren't necessarily a a participant of the viewing process anymore." Yeah. And then you become <laughs> the worst audience because you become so yep. analytical and Pissy. Oh, the other day I was watching a TV show with my fiance and uh, I stopped the, I almost said I stopped the tape. Um, I, I paused the episode and turned to him and was like, do you have any idea how many hours they spent trying to get the lights in the background to do that? He was like, honey, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, never mind. <laughs> but that's what I see now. I'm like, oh, those Oh, that poor crew spent so much time working on that one thing. And the actors, if they messed up one line, that would have been so annoying. And I just went to this full industry yeah. speak and a- analysis. I was like, oh, I'm not fun to watch yeah. this with anyone. Well, that's why, you know, we thank God that all the writers got along. Because uh, if you tried to go home and tell your wife about your day, it's met with uh, a dull thud because it loses everything in translation. You just ha- literally had to be there. 
So, uh, so yeah, I barely talked about my job when I went home. Thank you.